All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 255. Jason Lindgren is with me, and Matt Presti is back. You may recall Matt Presti is the president of the University of Science and Philosophy for Walter Russell Museum. A cool thing happened since Matt was on the last time. He wrote me a few days ago saying that they had their all-time best book sales since the first time he came on. And that's a big deal because, as most people know, they've been shut down. Everything's been shut down. The world's been shut down. So these book sales gave them a leg up when they needed it. And even more than that, the reason I was so interested in having them on, if people read material like this, they'd have a better grasp on reality and they'd treat each other more respectfully. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So you got another hurricane steaming in. What's this, your third this year? This is the third. This one might actually hit us at least a little bit. The other two went completely in a different direction. Well, we've pre-recorded and you've got me files. So um, if worse comes to worse, we'll do the remote thing like we have in the past to keep the train on the tracks. But do you have anything else? Nope. Let's rock and roll. All right. Well, let's let's get Matt in here. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Appreciate it. So I was sitting here the other day slogging through a lot of depressing emails and I got your email and light, lit up my day. Um, so happy to hear that the book sales lifted and, and helped you out uh, on the tail of our last get together here. So before we do anything, Matt, why don't you tell people who are interested in, well, I'll let you tell what titles there are, but so people understand Walter Russell wrote uh, the Universal One, it is said he was in illumination for 39 days. If I remember correctly to our last episode, there's never been an edit from the time he put pen to paper to what we read now. And it's really quite an astonishing thing to read. It gives you a completely more grounded, common sense look at the world. But Matt, tell people what books they can buy and where they can buy them to help out the Walter Russell Museum as much as possible. Sure. Well, I want to say thanks for the opportunity. And uh, there's a series of interviews I did over the past uh, few months, especially in May and, and June, actually uh, late April, May, June. And uh, that resulted, I'd say about 11 different interviews, one being your platform and ah. had a chief scientist on as well. And we just, after your interview, we saw a massive increase in the Universal One, which is really, a lot of people consider that as magnum opus. It was his first introduction of his scientific details that he garnered from that illumination experience in particular the hundreds of charts and drawings he had written down he, he never had an especial interest in science so when he had experienced that illuminated state uh, it was more or less his command that he put science back on the right track and science of the day in the 1910s to the teens and into the 20s begin to remove the creator from creation, if you will. It's kind of like removing the painter from the painting and saying that the painting more or less comes out of accidents or explosions, in other words, which, you know, any person can look at anything man-made and know that there's a, a mental process that must occur prior to anything being created by the hands of man. So in the same light, Russell wanted to put the course of uh, science back on track. And so he wrote the Universal One as his first release to the world of science in 19, late 26 and 1927. He sent 300 copies to prominent scientists and 700 copies to universities. I'm sorry, 
flip that 700 to prominent scientists, 300 to universities around the world. And a few people got back about it, but that was his first introduction of his knowledge garnered from that light experience. Uh, Nikola Tesla was, was one of those folks to respond that he should lock it away for a thousand years. But so that book really took off. I mean, we talked about it a little on the shows and, uh, we had just record sales runs on that book. A lot of people uh, emailed the, the university foundation saying great interviews and, and kudos to Crow and Jason and, and the staff. So we were able to meet the demand and, and we were flying out of books and we were actually on our third reprint. Unfortunately, we're not a well endowed foundation because we're kind of new out of the gate. Everything was in storage for 20 plus years. So opening the museum in 2019 and then entering into this lockdown was, was sort of a difficult thing. So it kind of was worrisome in the beginning, but as things go and the universe provides, we were able to experience record book sales. And uh, it's been part of my uh, administration's goals to get this work out to more and more people. And I think people being locked down kind of also presented the opportunity for folks to get and view and, and read more. So I think probably many bookstores and book vendors experienced a larger volume of orders, but maybe in times of pandemics and or plandemics, whichever you prefer to call it, you know, those spiritual interests will rise in more of a general, you know, the general population. So a lot of really great books though we offer. And um, of course, it's just one line of, of philosophy. There's many out there, but we have, uh, for instance, The Man Who Tapped the Secrets of the Universe is a great book. Um, the Secret of Light, which I started with, I still consider to be my favorite. Uh, a New Concept of the Universe, which is, again, more of a scientific explanation of creation. Uh, it's, it's primarily focused on the science of Walter Russell. And we have Atomic Suicide and, uh, of course, The Message of the Divine Iliad, Volume 1 and 2, which are incredible reads. And so the, the home study course really is the penultimate, and it's a $225 course, but compared to the cost of a university leftist indoctrination into communistic values where you owe hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest for 30 years of your life, you could get the home study course for 225 bucks, and it will never leave you. It's timeless wisdom and knowledge from a demonstrable source. Uh, Walter Russell produced uh, hundreds of tons of art and sculpture in his lifetime. Uh, we have 40 tons of that on display at the museum. And that was only 2% of the work he actually did from different sources I've heard in the university. And uh, teaches you to become a master creator and to unfold your innate talents and your own genius, which all men have, but few choose to unfold that, women included. So it's, it's really, as Walter said, mediocrity is self-inflicted, genius is self-bestowed, and he gave us a, man, a player's manual on how to unfold our inner genius. So let, let me jump in here before you tell people where they can go uh, if they're interested in the books or the course, but I'd like to say... After we did these episodes, so many people went and got the Universal One. By the way, Universal One is a gorgeous, well-made book that could be handed down from generation to generation. And from my point of view, I do use an e-reader because it cuts down on the amount of books. I This one, you want the book. 
There are full page illustrations that demonstrate some realities about where we exist. And that's another thing. So many people came to comment uh, when they saw how Walter Russell illustrated how light moves, how everything moves, and they were correlating it to other things we'd cover. But Matt, where can people go to get access to these materials that best benefit you guys uh, under the onslaught where so many things are, are just failing? Sure. I, I always recommend philosophy.org. That's our home website and philosophy.org forward slash store. If you want to go straight to the store, uh, there are links. Uh, we do accept donations as well. A lot of 501c3s need that support. So if anybody's in a position to support, we greatly appreciate it. And all our efforts go to preserve the Russell legacy. He was one of those rare individuals like a Tesla, like a uh, Alexander Graham Bell, one of those rare people that Charles Goodyear is, is, is just an incredible creative person and, and really a genius at, at what he did and how he applied himself. So if you want to support the foundation, we greatly appreciate it. Just visit www.philosophy.org. All right, there it is. And by the way, so many things closing around us, brick and mortars where people used to go, the world would be all the more poorer for losing access to this material. The first time that I got anything from Walter Russell, it was the universal one. And I think I sat there for something like six hours up into the, I, I was planning to read for an hour and go to bed. Like I always do. Um, I was up to the middle of the night, uh, going through these full page illustrations, just amazing. But Jason, uh, you want to jump in or where would you like to jump in? Well, I'm kind of curious with your course, what exactly does it go through? Because that sounds very interesting to me. Well, it, it begins with meditation, scientifically explained, and then it moves more into the core of communing with the creator, which the Russells, let me just, just stress this, their use of the term God or creator connotes consciousness. And consciousness is really the penultimate prime actuality that is behind all motion, as Dr. Russell discovered in his illumination experience. It also correlates with many other illuminates, uh, Lao Tzu to mention, to name one. Um, you know, there's others I could, could name as well, who uh, like Walt Whitman and others that uh, the Russells even cite from some of those works by these illuminated individuals. And, and most of them tend to agree, even uh, Gopi Krishna and others, that, that God is consciousness. So if you, if you can understand that going into the Russell teachings, it's really going to help. And uh, it more or less removes the middleman and puts the impetus on you to develop a relationship with your own consciousness, which is God, to the degree that you're aware that it is. In other words, to the degree that a drop in the ocean is aware of the ocean, the ocean's power is available to that drop. And that's an individual you can't be in a collective and get there. You have to rise out of the collective to the individual and then lose yourself in the impersonal. And that's, that's really the ultimate accomplishment for mankind in that the greatest people that we can cite on record have all been able to do this in some way, shape, or form. And that's why their writings are immortal and their music, you know, like uh, the Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, for instance, he was in that light when he wrote that down. And uh, it's that kind of timeless existence that really proves that this is the ultimate reality to experience. And the way to experience it, there are many people who have written, but there's never been a course, to my knowledge, 
It's unlike A Course in Miracles in many ways. Uh, it's A Course in Cosmic Consciousness. And they preferred to term their work meta-science as opposed to metaphysics. And they said that the difference was great. So it doesn't require channeling. There's no beings between you and consciousness. It's you and consciousness or God, as, as it can be called, creator, whatever you term it. But that relationship is the penultimate relationship because it's, again, it's you and the creator and no middleman in between. There's no need for a priest, a guru, a rabbi, any of that. And so this is the basis of the course, and eventually it goes into the science in a very, very detailed way. And the new concept of the universe was meant to be the 13th unit of the home study course, which is only 12 units, and each unit consists of four lessons. So a total of 48 lessons, and then the definitely want to buy the $25 new concept of the universe, which is the 13th unit of the home study course, or was meant to be originally. But uh, that that's, again, so you're starting with the uh, meditation scientifically explained. You move into the philosophy, the nature of the creator, and how your consciousness works with it in concert, and how to unfold genius, and then how to knowingly work with the creative force within you, as opposed to looking outside for knowledge outside of yourself. It's not to say that you can't find a teacher to help you hone in some of your skills with woodworking or violin playing or whatever it is you're trying to improve. But ultimately, it puts the impetus on you to unfold yourself to the highest degree. And then it unfolds the science at the, the last units. And then the final unit is on love, which is a very universal uh, understanding of how love is the actual force behind the entire universe and that the energy that we use in everyday life is from that love which is more defined as as energy or love scientifically defined would be desire in other words and how we use it can uh, determine or dictate our own fates and and destinies but uh, ultimately it's a great course and that at least like i said i've never encountered a course like it and for the price you can't beat it something you can return to over and over again throughout your life and it's greatly inspiring. And I think the inspirational teachers, if you look back into your own lives, you might have had a sixth grade teacher, maybe one in high school, who was just not like all the rest of the teachers. Because one thing that makes you remember a teacher over just every other teacher is that they inspired you. And that's what you get from the Russell teachings is just tremendous inspiration one after another. You know, one of the amazing things that I began to find is we really kind of are going back to the future. So many of the people in the so-called modern era teaching us to sidestep the men in black, get rid of those mediators that want to convince you to believe in this or believe in that. Use your God-given abilities, but I can go back to the oldest writings I have on my shelf uh, where I first learned and then tested and accepted ideas like mind precedes all. And what we find is a common thread up to these modern illuminated individuals that are just repackaging and re that's not even the right word, reiterating what was known before that got lost in the annals of time. But uh, when you get into the Russell work and you see those big illustrated pages and graphs and, and drawings of how this place works from the illuminated point of view, you lose hours. Just all of us, you know, you just lose hours going, wow, it hits you at a very deep 
center of your being. But I'm going to hand it over to Jason and try to hand off a little bit here. So we definitely got into a whole lot of topics in the first show that we did with you. You know, I'm kind of curious, do you guys speak with other, not talk show hosts necessarily, but other people who are into exploring concepts and all that? Because when I've done searches for Walter Russell, uh, I say, for instance, on YouTube, I've found a whole bunch of other people talking about it. And there's varying degrees of agreeance on how right or wrong he may have been about certain concepts. Do you guys deal with the greater community with that, or do you kind of keep to yourselves? Well, I must take you back to 2008 when I first actually went out of my way to to research and find Walter Russell. There are actually no no videos, no anything on the man. I mean, I I remember seeing the you know Google used to say this many matches when you type in a name. There's 226 matches for Walter Russell the first time I Googled him, and now it's in the millions. So that's a good sign. I would say that there is a greater Russell community, although it's it's really, as far as enclaves or, or different groups, um, we encourage people to form study groups, which the Russells actually wrote the blueprint for called International Age of Character Clubs. And Basically, another function of the home study course was the building of character and the inculcating of character because they they really stressed Edwin Markham's writing, in vain we build our cities if we do not first build the men or the man. And man building is basically character building, which Alexis Carroll, it was his idea to Walter Russell that mankind needed a university to study man. And we've studied anatomy, we've got anthropology, we've got mathematics, we've got all these different courses of study, but not of the soul of man. There's no study on earth that studies the soul of man and its purpose. And that is what the university was founded by Dr. Walter Leo Russell to do. And so I would say, um, ultimately, there's a large student contingent in Nigeria in the River States region. And that's an interesting story in and of itself, because they they basically, in the 90s, a doctor Melford Okilo, Chief Melford Okilo, ordered tens of thousands of dollars in books to be shipped to the, the River States region. And he was eventually imprisoned. He was governor of the River States region, and he was basically imprisoned and overthrown by militant groups of rebels because he was decentralizing the government and creating power through hydro production and electricity and empowering people using these teachings. And so the river states region began to experience more or less a renaissance. It was shut down and he was in prison for five years. One of those tragic stories, but nonetheless, um, we still have a large contingent there and international age of character clubs who really focus on character building. And it's great to see so that these teachings have reached around the world. There's a lot of great uh, different groups here and there. Not necessarily have we reached out to any. They, they more or less operate individually. We don't really have, minus our homecomings, which happen yearly. Uh, we won't be having one this year due to the whole COVID wreck nonsense, the Rona, whatever. But uh, we will do more next year, hopefully, and just get through the selection cycle. And, and uh, I'd like to see more uh, group involvement. But... Ultimately, um, even the Russell's home study course, it's, they, they stressed it was not meant to be studied in groups, more or less. You can meet in groups to talk about the concepts, 
But ideally, you want to read the course by yourself alone where you can be just you and the words together, more or less. And the way they laid it out with the double spacing was to put space between the lines so that you could contemplate the creator between each line. It was laid out very specifically. And uh, like I mentioned in the last show we did, a previous administration had changed that to make it more textbook-like against the wishes of the Russells who weren't even here to defend themselves with the change. So we switched it back out of respect for their work. And in other words, which note would you remove from the Fifth Symphony of Beethoven because you don't like it? You know, it's not ours to change the work, even if it's incorrect or out of context with modern day society. Um, my job as president is to just preserve their legacy as it is. And so that's that's what we've been trying to do. But as for groups, I would, you know, I would just say that, that the best way to study the material is alone, one-on-one with it, and then eventually come to talk about it with others and compare and contrast. Well, that also makes it harder for the thought police to get in. Now, you're probably going to have to correct me here, but I think I recall in the, one of the first versions of Russell work that I got a hold of that he needed to publish. And was it a doctor who was so taken with the work that he ponied up all the cash with no concern for being repaid, just so important to him to get the work out. And also on the tail of that, if I remember correctly, uh, the Vatican took some time to write Mr. Russell a note on the tail of his universal one saying, don't publish this again. Did I get all that right? Uh, that's correct. Fritz Springmeier was his first believer. <laughs> that's how, how Russell termed it in, in an endearing letter uh, that he supported him uh, in a financial way as well. And that was for the addendum, which was called the Russell Radio Generative, General Radiative Concept, I think it was, the Russell General Radiative Concept, which was an addendum to the Universal One. Uh, you are also correct in that he was contacted by the Vatican. We were still looking for that official letter, or might have been a phone call, which is why we can't find an actual letter. But he said himself in one of his 1953 lectures that was recorded, and we have that actually up on the YouTube page for the university, that excerpt where he says that he was contacted by the Vatican and told that the Pope would issue a decree against his universal one if he was to reprint it. And a decree by the Pope in the, tw- in the 20s and early 30s was basically financial suicide. You would never again find work. You know, you would never again be able to publish a book because back then, as you can imagine, the Vatican had quite a lot more power than it does today, I think. And at least even on the the unhidden end of it, I would say. But ultimately, that's what I think is the main reason as to why he did not republish it. Uh, He did want to redo the Universal One, which he was able to introduce his Divine Iliad, which was his 40,000 words. He was basically commanded not to release the Divine Iliad until 24 years after the initial release of the Universal One. So he released The Secret of Light in 1946, which contained excerpts from the writings in the 40,000 words that he wrote down. And that was basically his command. But Ultimately, he would pass in 63, and it was Leo who would reprint the Universal One in 1974, and that was the first reprint since the thousand that was printed in 1926. 
Was he tuned in enough to himself and his connection with the universe that he knew when he was going to pass? And if so, did he leave a final message or something that was supposed to be released at some point, like that kind of thing? Um, not to my knowledge, uh, minus the lecture series, which they said would be invaluable and incalculably priceless to future generations of, of Russell students. Uh, that was all they had intended to, to be released after passing. Uh, he did have a supposed seventh book from the Divine Iliad that was not released, but I think in part some of that was released in the home study course, I want to say, uh, the Book of Creation. Uh, we do have that, and we may publish that at some point, but again, we have to raise the money to do it, and we're not well endowed, I would say, as a, as a restart business that's coming out of the gate pretty fresh after 20 years in storage. But thanks to the online sales and other things, it's it's more probable that that's going to get done sooner than later. So we've done several reprints since uh, the interview on uh, the Universal One, and it's looking great so far. And I, I hope to get that uh, released eventually. Well, I think there's uh, an underlying, this is not going to run on social media, which is going to leverage mightily what I'm about to say. We're getting to the point now when people see censored content as the very place they need to be looking because these are minds that realize we're not babies. We don't need mommy and daddy telling us what we can and cannot do. We are beings with the divine spark granted us. And that gives us all the power in this world we will ever need, but we've kind of lost track of that. And when you see the men in black contacting people to say, if you publish this again, we'll ruin you. Who the hell are they? And that I use the word hell there on purpose because it seems that the men in black have been very concerned with what we think about all the way up to our deathbed, right there at your deathbed, asking for that last contract, right? Um, but now we're kind of moving away where the individuals are realizing. And when they see censorship, what I see is a lot of people saying, well, why was that censored? I don't see anything dangerous. Why is this being censored? And that's what struck me because I had gone through the Russell content, never understanding till our interview uh, that the Vatican had deigned uh, to contact Mr. Russell and uh, basically did, in fact, stop him from republishing until after his death, as you pointed out. But let's get into let's get into a few of the nuts and bolts that we might not have covered last time. Matt, do you want to look at uh, the Universal One or do you want to focus in on one of the other things that we can talk a bit about? Yeah, I'm up for anything. I'll, I'll just add this caveat that uh, you're kind of on the same wavelength as Dr. Russell when I when I first looked you up after the initial invitation. Uh, one of your motifs is uh, belief is the enemy of knowing. And I would just say that, that Dr. Russell would agree 100% because he never used the word belief for the most part in, in all of his writings. Sensing, he always saw a difference between sensing and thinking. Thinking is what mind does. It's not, uh, it's more or less a function of mind, which is consciousness, which is God. Many of these words are synonymous when you understand the Russell teachings. Mind, God, gravity, it's all one. It's all the same in meaning. And uh, knowing is also synonymous with mind. And when mind knows, it thinks what it knows. And that's really all any of us can do is think what we know. If we're thinking without knowing, then we're experimenting, and that can often end disastrously, as, as we've seen many Darwin Awards given out to non-thinkers or people just, 
moving ahead without really contemplating what it is. But belief really is something as, as, as your own saying goes, not our friend. There's no need to believe when you know what it is that, in other words, <laughs> knowing is the state of the genius because they purposely do things as opposed to accidentally. But that's just a little thing I wanted to throw out there that, that you and Doc have in common. Well, when I, when I first got going and I began to realize why is it that so many people are being sucked under here, um, it quickly I focused in on belief. And as I began to realize that words have meaning, I realized the word lie, L-I-E, is right in the middle of it. And as I got, got further and further, realizing the intent of our language, um, then knowing became the be-all and the end-all. And part of that was every day back then, decades ago, the news would tell me, man, your kitchen's on fire. Something's burning in the kitchen. I'd run to the kitchen. There's nothing on fire here. Nothing's burning in there. I'd go back down. No, really. Now your house is on fire. Now your neighborhood's on fire. And I'd run out and nothing's on fire here. Um, and that's what did it for me is I finally broke the spell of everything that I'm being barraged with to lead me astray, to control what I believe, um, which is the entirety of it, just like right now. So many people believe we need to close down the world. There's not a body in sight. There's not a problem in sight. But these people believe they need to do these things uh, to the point where they're not even questioning, why am I doing this? Is there anything here that would require me to do these things? And what that tells us is there's no knowing. Because once you know, it is what it is. doesn't matter one damn who accepts or doesn't accept. Knowing transcends that. If the whole entire world tells you you are wrong and yet you know, it doesn't matter anymore because you know. And in the same way no one can tell me the sky is green, that is knowing. The whole world could come to my door and say, Crow, guess what? The sky is green now. And I'll look them in the eye and I'll walk away because I know damn well the sky is blue. And that represents the knowing. And that is a big part of why Walter Russell resonated with me. And that's a big part of why I was so happy to get your email the other day and understand that so many other minds were searching seriously enough to go out and get the universal one or the other books uh, that I view as a grounding in reality. It doesn't really matter. Well, it does matter, but it doesn't change the nature of what's true and what's not true. If the entire world sidesteps this, it's still there waiting for us to catch up, grow up and, uh, and catch on. But what do you think? You want to do the Divine Iliad a little bit? or you want to do the universal one a little bit, which one of those things do you think would be more helpful under the conditions we're all existing in right now? I think the divine Iliad would be fantastic. All right. I, I couldn't agree more with you there. And I would say that that sovereignty comes from leaving the collective collective knowledge is often dictated to by one authority, you know, be it a priest for a congregation or a uh, Marxist leader for a political movement. <laughs> Just leave it there. But ultimately, when you rise out of the, the collective and become a sovereign being, you do so through knowledge and you do so through the acquisition and the right use of it. And, and that's well said. To interrupt before you go, let's point out another thing. And all those graphs and all the writing and the books from Walter Russell, uh, what struck me immediately was I was no longer alone because this man was tying it to nature and I'd already come to the acceptance that there is no lie in nature. It does what it does when it needs to do it without exception and it's never trying to fool you or lie to you. 
like the works of men. And so there's the other thing that was hugely important in my recognizing the work is that this relates to the one place I know to go where there is no lie. I don't even have to think or question, am I being fooled here? There is no lie proffered. And the work and those graphs, the way motion moves, it's all tied to the natural world, isn't it? Or what we could call the creation. But sorry for interrupting. Um, no, you're, you're very, very spot on there. And that's in, in a lot of ways, when I read The Secret of Light, I, I remember turning to my beloved Lori and said, when I finished it, I never need to read another book as long as I live. I felt I had discovered the ultimate truth. And uh, of course, I would go on to read pretty much every. In fact, every single book Walter ever wrote, and, and I continue to read, it's great, but it had that kind of an effect. And, and I know a lot of people when they first encounter his work are tremendously inspired by it. And, and nature is really the, the great inspiring force. And the reason it's, it's so incredible is because, as, as the Russells would say in other Illuminates, nature is God thinking. That's what the creator's thinking looks like. And that's why we can't find a lie in it, because if it was, if it, if nature belonged to man and man was the one thinking it up, it would be a disaster. It would be completely <laughs> in shambles and, and screwed beyond all hell, you know, <laughs> to, to and, say the least. So least. thank God that God is the thinker of nature, because that is the great architect, as the Masons call it, or as others would call it, the creator, what, whatever it is, the term one uses it's it's perfect in what it does and any imbalance is quickly rendered voided and returned and so the great poets knew it that's why whitman would go out into the woods alone for hours and write you know incredible verse and the greatest minds have all pointed to nature and they say that's that's where you should take your greatest teaching from but ultimately, that's the thinking of the creator, and, and that's why it's so inspiring and there's no lie in it. And uh, ultimately, man, if, if a man is the right kind of a teacher, he won't point you to other men. He'll point you to nature. And that's how you know that that's a trustworthy human being because they're not going to take credit before nature. They will put nature before themselves. There it is, the foundation. There, there's no deeper to go, is there? Um, and this reminds me, you know, Jason and I talk an awful lot about vibration creating form, which is proven through cymatics or that, remember the old harmonograph, which is like the precursor of the spirograph, but actually attached to the natural world. I recently read, this is a little off track, but I recently read that back in the day through cymatic patterns, they knew that one of the ways they tested to see if a Wagner piece was actually a Wagner piece is because there was a cymatic signature even after it was played by someone else. That was the claim. And I began to realize uh, that you could almost view the creation of form as we see it, what we'll call matter, which actually comes from the word mother, ironically, as the echoes of the thoughts of God, or as if God was playing a, a violin or something, and we were getting the, like the as above, so below idea, that we were getting the reflection of all that vibration, creating what we have here, but with a path to go higher. And I know that was all a little off track, but I, I found it so interesting that there were people back in the day claiming we could, like, you always see someone get a, a painting and they're, they're arguing, oh, this isn't a Pollock, that's a Pollock, this isn't, a, you know, and I, what I see is a bunch of splattered paint, you know, it's like, who cares if it's a Pollock? To right. me, that's not even art. And then these guys were looking at classical music 
that is among the highest achievements that I'm aware of. Um, there are painters who, who have gotten in that ballpark, but they were claiming that the cymatic print left behind would inform them if that unique vibration uh, was from that source. And I, in a way, that kind of relates to me. Do you remember? I'm going to have to ask you because I can't remember, but do you verbatim remember the quote from Russell, how all form moves in uh, spirals? Yeah. All direction is curved and all motion is spiral. There you go. You got it. I knew there's, it. There's no straight lines in nature. And the closest we've come to discovering straight lines are through the cleavages of crystals. But ultimately, the invisible Pythagorean shapes belong to the invisible universe. Much like, say, the construction of an arch. You know, you could watch the construction of the St. Louis arch. And around all arches are straight line scaffolding. And so... A lot of people say, you know, and I, I've begun to question this myself, maybe we should live in more of a circular fashion, but I think the reason, much of the reason we use right angles for construction is because those are the mental invisible constructs that surround the curved motion of the universe, which again, just proves to me that Russell is right, that the cube is the invisible and the sphere is the visible and each one is the other ones. The cube is the sphere expanded and the sphere is the cube compressed. So all through nature, the mind will compress straight lines into curvature and then curvature expands back into straight lines. And that's why there's no shapes of squares or, or real triangles, equilateral triangles in nature because they're mental constructs. But that's exactly what it takes to build an arch is a rectangular scaffolding. We couldn't construct an arch without straight line scaffolding. Interestingly enough, the straight lines, the 90 degree angle is described as the angle of sorrow. The idea being if energy came down both to meet at the corner, it would crash there. Uh, the angles of joy being a perfect triangle, you could use a Y. So if energy came down both sides of the Y, it would converge and head out the tail without the crashing. That's the basic breakdown of, of I think, what you're pointing out, that there's no straight lines in nature. But that's interesting, too, because apparently the straight lines exist, as you were saying. They're just not visible to us. As a matter of fact, you'll, you can read very old descriptions of the supposed fourth dimension, which is supposedly at right angles to length, breadth, and height. The fourth dimension that we don't see in our three-dimensional eyes is said to be at a right angle. And then again, the fifth dimension at a right angle to the fourth dimension. So it's almost exactly what you said because they're there. We just don't see or perceive them. And yet here we are making our right angles to build a thing uh, that has no right angles. And I would also point out things like, what about J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit? How many people read that opening, the description of a hobbit hole, no angles of sorrow there, and they were just <laughs> drawn right in, right? And they're all thinking, man, I wish I could, I'm with you. I think that we should absolutely begin to build without right angles. Uh, I think this would be a much more cohesive, intelligent world if we did that, uh, because I think the first thing that would happen is a bit of stress would fall off us. Does feng shui tap into that to some degree? Well, yeah, I, I, I've long enjoyed the idea of feng shui is basically the, the allowance of energy to move in a room. And when you're clogging things up, especially in the center of the room, if it's not, if it's something large, it's going to create a, a block more or less to the, the natural flow of energy. And I, 
I would say one thing I've been strangely fortunate in is that I've had a sense of feng shui, just a natural sense of that. Uh, I was doing that before I even learned the word feng shui. I would, I would set things up in such a way that it always allowed for energy to move freely through the room, including your own bodily movements. You want to be able to walk around a room without tripping all over things. And so I've had a, a natural inclination for an orderly setup. And uh, a lot of people jokingly say that's OCD, but OCD to me is uh, overly creative drive. And more or less, uh, things are easier to find if they're organized and you get more done rather than tripping over a, a completely disorderly room, you know, so that's why with the military, you'll see that, uh, there's a, what's called military wiring. Like if you wire a nuclear submarine, you got to be able to trace every single wire, say there's a bundle of a hundred wires. When you wire in this manner, you can trace each wire. From its source to its termination point without wrapping around other things. I mean, that's how orderly the military does things. And so they're, they're one of the most efficient militaries in the world. Of course, we know it's been hijacked by forces that aren't interested in, in freedom or liberty. But nonetheless, that, that kind of orderly process is what creates the, the dynamic energy flows. And you're mentioning the fourth and fifth dimension. I would say this. It's good to look into who Edwin Abbott was, the guy who wrote Flatland, uh, which is where Einstein got his idea of the fourth dimension. Uh, that, that pretty much the way Russell would describe dimensions is he said that energy, all energy in its source, which could mean God, the mind, knowledge, is at, is at right angles to motion. Ah, there it is. And, and it's dead on spot. But I would just say that, that Russell described 18 dimensions, but he did so in a third dimensional format. Length, width, breadth, color, temperature, tone. These were the things that Walter called different dimensions, not necessarily the, the Edwin Abbott, who was the son of a priest, a father over at the Church of London or somewhere back in the 1860s, 70s, I think. He was the one who actually came up with the idea of a fourth dimension, and that's where again einstein drew his idea that time had its own dimension outside of uh which is actually not correct <laughs> right right i was gonna so, i'm glad i don't have to jump in on that one thank you right so yeah it's 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 an interesting paradigm but uh ultimately the dimensions all belong to the third and it's just our incorrect perception that you know again you have the new age movement saying if only all of us could get to the fifth dimension everything would be perfect it's sort of that external savior idea where we're incapable of fixing the third because it's infested by demons and 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 ghouls and and archons and and the whole gnostic idea that this entire creation is a blasphemy or a, or a mistake and that we need to get somewhere else in order to live a divine life many people have come before us and and said that divinity is something that unfolds from within you it's it's not to be achieved through conquest or rape or pillaging, it comes from within. And, and ultimately, th that's again what a sovereign being does. A truly sovereign being does not look for external things to save it. And that's why we're seeing the death of the big daddy government going down because it's a complete and utter failure. It lets people down at every regard because, again, it's an external savior. And it's time that the human race man up 
more or less, and 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 really begin to, you know, seek self sovereignty, and that's going to solve a lot of problems if more and more people do that. And that also means, you know, perfecting your space, which feng shui is a great start to perfect your space. And uh, we can get more into that. There's lots of things, directions. You know, it's ironic. I brought this up a few times, and when I read the work of Russell, I felt like the things that I'd already come to accept as things I could know were being described in a way that let so many more minds consider it. And I think at the time, Jason and I were doing a show on the mysterious world of color, which by the way, we're going to do another show on color. The idea being that back in the day, there was these guys, I guess we'd call them alchemists now, but they wanted to make a medicine and they had everything schematized. So they'd walk out into their garden and he'd say, look, there's a flower. That flower is blue. That flower has this many petals. And instantaneously, just from that minute amount of information, he knew whether it was electric or magnetic, he understood that the the petals, the way they were laid out, related to cymatic pattern of vibration. He understood the vibratory rate of the plant because color is an expression of vibration. And all these things, and then he'd bring it back to his ideas of the human body, which could be paired off because that too was broken down in a similar matter. And from the moment I began to accept these ideas as possible as things that I could get to a point to implement, finally proving beyond the shadow of doubt that I'm not just accepting this stuff anymore. I know it. What I realized is if people thought about that simple blade of grass on their lawn in this way, the world would be a very, very different place. And that is a big part of what Russell did for me, because I knew if people read this and considered it in whatever way they want to, with no rules, no guidance, no man in black saying, you can't think this, or you can't do just take the text onto your God-given faculties and do what you will. Uh, We'd have a better world, wouldn't we? People would think much differently from all the things they've been conned into believing are true. We would. And, And again, Russell stressed the difference between sensing and knowing to help achieve that kind of a world. Because so many of the scientists of the day, even today, materialism rules in the scientific realm. Even consciousness is an effective matter. So right there, idealism and all its tenets were thrown out when the chairs of the universities were in the 20s and 30s were changed from natural scientists holding them to uh, materialists and quantum uh, scientists holding them. And that's, this whole idea is... is uh, more or less a abomination of the natural order. Russell said the quantum theory was, let me, let me see if I can recall his exact quote and new concept. He said it was a travesty to nature, the, the idea that energy comes in packets. And one must also understand when, when Russell wrote the universal one, he would later change his concept of magnetism from being a separate force to magnetism actually being an effect of electricity because when you have the twin opposing vortices that collide and create a 90 degree line or equator that creates the dual hemispheres and everything is hemispherical so there's a left side of our human body and a right side a left nostril right nostril left ear right ear left eye right eye so that we can see this divine symmetry in everything, in every insect, in every animal, every fish, every bird, every planet has a north and south pole. Why? 
Well, because what electricity does and the way he upgraded his definition of it later would be that electricity through a spiraling implosion creates basically two poles and those poles when they interchange, which are northern and southern poles, just like left and right of the body, when they interchange, they bore through each other and what can't be incorporated into the physical body is given off as heat through the equator. So basically, you could look at your own nostrils. You breathe in through the nose, through two holes, and then you can breathe in freezing sub-zero cold air, but you'll always exhale heat. And that's exactly what the planet does. It inhales the cold gases of space. Those gases create the hemispheres moving in and through each other. And what can't be integrated into the sphere is ejected at the equator through heat. And that's why satellites will also gravitate to the equator. They, they orbit the equator because that's where the least pressure is. That's, that's where the congruent factor is. But basically what you have with electricity and why there's really no magnetism, this is an important thing to understand, is that that effect of the twin opposing vortices creating that sphere and the, the radiative effect of that coming together creates a field. And that's not necessarily a separate force. It's an effect of the, the merging of two electric potentials into one. And so the right way to think about magnetism is that it's actually an effect of electricity. So there's really only one force in the universe, and that's an electric force. But there it, it is. Does, it does a seeming two things. It integrates and then disintegrates. And it integrates through its poles and disintegrates or, or compresses and then expands through its equator. And that's why all equators are warm. That's why you put the temperature, uh, the thermometer under your tongue, dead center of the body. I mean, you can do it under the arm as well, but ultimately uh, the center of the body is the, the most heat. And that's your equator. And it's a perfect invisible dividing line. It's a straight line, actually. It's the, it's the plane of a cube. So all of us are basically cubic in nature. We have a front, back, left, right, top, and bottom. Pretty much everything in the universe is cubical. Uh, look at the the hexagrams of, of the honeycomb. You know, it's it's everywhere through nature. We see this even in the you know point a camera at the sun and take a picture and look at the the hexagonal structure of the light itself, which is often in pictures when you take uh, pictures of the sun or whatnot. But it's all there. It just needs to be encoded and understood in a little bit different of a fashion. But Russell would go on to, to upgrade his own understandings, which, which really is, that's one of the things that I really value about him. He didn't just release the universal one and go, this is the ultimate truth. There's nothing beyond it. He actually went on later in his life, all the way up into atomic suicide, revamping his own ideas of what matter and structure were and how God and, and the creative force interweaved with it and, and what it does and so he was always looking to upgrade and, and perfect his own work as well, much the way Tesla did. And that's commendable. All right, Matt, we're going to need to wrap hour one, but that is another big deal. When I finally got a hold of the universal one, I had already come to accept that electricity is the only force. And I always liked the way it was expressed that the daughter of that is magnetism because exactly. it, kind, it kind of defines in the way that you're saying it. But then you begin to know things like the sun is electric. And so when you begin to know things, all of a sudden your world starts to change because you're not believing in here, believe this here, regurgitate this. You're actually starting to know things. And then when you know things, 
you know other things just because you knew the first things. Like nobody has to teach you. It's almost like the universe offers it to you and all at once you accept it. There is no decision process. But Jason, anything you want to get in before I wrap up here? I'd like to ask in the second hour, how much scientific evidence has actually backed up the way Walter Russell described things in the universe, the way they function? Uh, the electrical part of it definitely resonates correct with me. Let's hold that. Let's, let's open up the second hour with that. So for everyone listening, if you'd like to support this important work that I hope does not get buried for 50 or 100 years while we deal with all the nonsense that's going on around us, As a matter of fact, this work would help to stave off some of the nonsense going on around us, go to philosophy.org. And that is directly if you choose to get a book or whatever you choose to do. If you want to do the course, uh, you're interacting directly with them. There is no middleman. There is no Amazon. There is no man in black, as I like to say. But that brings hour one of episode 255 to a close. Join us over at Crow Triple Seven. Oh, actually, sorry, you're already there if you're listening to this because this can't run um, because we said a couple things COVID. Uh, that's against the rules, which should tell you something about what we're not allowed to talk about. It's nonsense. But anyhow, on Crow Triple Seven Radio.com, C R R O W seven 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 Radio.com, the only true Crow site. Uh, we were gonna we're gonna jump into the second hour and open up so widely about what I think are just such critical ideas because I can't underscore once you know things, this whole other world that you've been blind to opens up to you. And by the way, I'll close with a special note to the guy who's been fraudulently running two crow sites and ripping off all my stuff. They're coming for you, bud. They know who you are now. And what you've been doing, people don't appreciate. You defrauded people and they contacted me. PayPal's aware of what you've done. I noticed you removed the PayPal. And you're lucky I'm not a malicious guy, but your days are numbered. Join us at crow777radio.com for hour two of episode 255 with Matt Presty. We're going to get big time into some so important Walter Russell ideas. There it is, man. Cheers.
enemies of knowing. 